I'd, I'd like to begin by, uh, by deeply appreciating your continuing practice and all that you're, all that you're bringing to this experience. Uh, it feels like we're in a very tender and precious phase of the retreat. You know, perhaps, perhaps in its heart. And uh, that's being enabled by the dedication and the goodwill and the patience and the kindness and the equanimity and the support for each other and the sense of humor and all these other deeply wholesome qualities that feel so evident in this group on this retreat. So really heartfelt appreciation to each of you. you know. And you know, that's not to deny the difficulties or the the doubts and the hindrance factors that pitch up. But really yeah, an encouragement to keep leaning into, encouragement to all of us, to keep leaning into what resources us. What steadies us, what grounds us, you knew I'd mentioned that, uh, what uplifts and nourishes and soothes, because that's, that's how... That's what supports these bodies and these hearts gradually to do what they're wanting to do, which is to release and unbind and open. We, we, we can't have too much resourcing. You know. So really, uh, you know, really an encouragement to keep, keep orienting in that direction. And this evening, um, I, I'd like to offer some reflections on the theme of, of self and not self, and on the, the, the benefits and the importance of uh, practicing a flexibility of view and perspective in relation to these themes. And although on this occasion I'm the one sitting up here at the front giving the uh, reflections, I really want to honour the life experience and reflections and explorations of these themes that are embodied in each of you, each of us. Because these are, these are very integral themes, even though they may in some ways seem a bit abstract. They're very integral to our experience of being human beings. So really just to kind of acknowledge the, the experience and wisdom that's in the, in the group and the room around this, this, uh, this topic. And, and certainly we, we can see that the Buddha's, that the teachings on not-self as we'll see, the Buddha uses the language of self and the language of not-self. 
for the teachings on not self, on anatta, A N, not, atta, A double T A, really lie at or near the heart of his teachings of liberation. And uh, in a very kind of real way, though in quite implicit way, that teaching, those principles are also present within contemporary mindfulness-based approaches. And we may sense in our own practice and our own work as therapists and mindfulness teachers how integral they are to the alleviation of suffering. You know, these teachings on, on not-self really are a, a quietly priceless, liberating uh, treasure. Uh, they point to a groundless ground and a bottomless bottom line that means we don't ultimately need to be afraid of suffering. They're they're practical and they're profound. And also they're also the teaching on not self is also counterintuitive. You know, so much of the Buddha's teaching makes sense. It's kind of common sense, isn't it? You know, being present, being kind, impermanence, equanimity, compassion, all of these we can say, oh yeah, yeah, I get that, I get that, yeah? But isn't it also the case that, you know, there's around this teaching of not-self, we have this kind of intuitive sense of someone in there to whom all this is happening, isn't that right? You know, there's a kind of sense that of someone who, who we feel the pressures in the body and the heart from the self's urges and aversions and anxieties and frustrations and longings. You know? And we can also see, you know, notice how in sense experience, particularly in the sense of sight, isn't there a, a kind of structuring of sight in terms of subject and object? And the subject feels separate from the object. And it gets reinforced as a sense, okay, yeah, this is me. You know? It feels like you know, Miss Piggy's moi is, a, is alive and kicking, isn't it? You know? The sense of self is, is not just a philosophical issue. It's really present for us. And yet, have you ever found yourself? <laughs> you know? I mean, if we go hunting... Well, we can find body, yeah? We can find thoughts, we can find moods, we can find memories, we can find awareness. But have you found the self? You know, the great American psychologist, father of American psychology, William James, said, you know, when I search for the self, all I can find is a tickle at the back of my throat. (laughs) So isn't there something quite deeply curious here? That, that the self feels at times both really here, <laughs> really here, alive and kicking, and not here, insubstantial when we look for it. And, and don't we also sense this in others as well? How, you know, we can have known someone for, for many decades and they can still surprise us. There's something kind of ultimately unknowable, ungraspable about other human beings. 
And you know, when we reflect on our experience of self, don't we also sense, both in ourselves and in others, that, that self isn't a single thing? Isn't there, one of our colleagues talks about the theatre of selves. Aren't there lots of different selves that show up? You know, in different relationships, different situations? You know, it's not a unitary experience if we, if we pay attention. And so it may be that this sense of flexibility of, of view is actually quite an appropriate response to this um, kind of puzzling experience of self and not-self and selves and others. And can we also sense that there is there can be a kind of wobbliness something a bit unsettling about this self-not-self thing, the fact that the self is here and yet it feels insubstantial. There can be a kind of groundlessness in our system that, that feels quite existential in a certain way. You know, and, and that can produce a sense of anxiety, just a kind of basic sense of angst, <laughs> you know, because we're kind of don't we feel on shaky ground here, you know. I am on shaky ground is the experience, you know. And the Buddha really highlighted. I mean, well, we well we can see some of the ways we try to compensate uh, for that. You know, philosophically, you look at the tradition of Western philosophy. There's a lot of trying to work out what the self is, trying to find it. You know, Descartes comes up with "I think, therefore I am." Whew. You know, found it, you know. Yeah. And I love uh, Woody Allen's comment, you know, I- I'd rather be a crummy somebody than a complete nobody, you know. And so there is that way in which it feels like faced with this groundless experience around self, there's this kind of reaching, trying to find certainty in a certain way, isn't there? Trying to find substantiality. And, and Yuka spoke about it this a bit the other night in terms of the dynamics of craving. The Buddha identified this craving to become. And don't we have that experience that there's often this urge to become this or that, to get qualified, to get partnered up, to get that experience, to get that certificate, to get that promotion. Uh, and it's almost like everything feels a bit kind of wobbly, and so I project a kind of solidity. Once I'm finally qualified as a psychologist, then I can relax, you know, because thing will, things will feel, or as a mindfulness teacher, or whatever it is, you know. Is that how it works? No, it's not. You know, this, cra- this craving to become, cra- can we feel that in, in ourselves? Kind of almost like trying to find substantiality in a groundless world. And that it's, it's uh, well, as Yuka was pointing out, it doesn't satisfy. You know? And, of course, part of the groundlessness, one of the ways the groundlessness can show up in is, is the opposite, that craving not to be that Yuka mentioned. You know, where, where the self feels broken or the self feels overwhelming or kind of defective in some way, or just too much, you know, the kind of duvet dive that 
sometimes one can do after lunch on a retreat. You know, it's just a, too much effort. I'm just going to kind of dive for annihilation in the duvet and a siesta, you know. But, of course, that same instinct can, you know, be very present in depression, can't it? To say, you know, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be this kind of person. And, and so we see that, that you know, that, this is part of the reactivity to the groundlessness that we experience around the sense of self. And, you know, it can, we sometimes can find this teaching of not-self being translated as no-self. Have you read that in Buddhist books? The Buddha taught no-self. And for reasons that we'll look at, that doesn't, that can collude with that sense of the desire not to be. And sometimes we can get the either conscious or unconscious idea that the aim of practice is to get rid of the self. Have you, have you noticed that? You know, that somehow the self is the problem and I've just got to transcend it, you know. Good luck, you know, one of our... Our colleagues compares it to like trying to fit a carpet that's a little bit too big for the room. And it kind of bulges up here, so you push it down, then it comes up over there. You push it down, it comes up over there. Isn't it a bit like that with the selfing? I, I, you know, I think I've got it nicely sorted on retreat. It's all got very transparent and easeful. And then I go home, you know, and, or open the inbox or whatever it is, you know. And This can be a near enemy, a a danger around this practice, where we also, there can be a sense of almost pathologizing personality. You know? That, That kind of expressiveness and character and color somehow feel a bit unskillful. You know? It can be a message that we kind of misinterpret from retreat contexts, which which tend to really, you know, turn down the volume on expressiveness and drama and all of that. And we can sometimes develop the view, oh, that's how I'm meant to be all the time. So my job is to kind of become beige or, or vanilla, you know, in a certain way. And do you know that Buddhist, that kind of Buddhist tendency that can be? I sometimes... Speaking personally, I think sometimes Buddhist men can be, you know, I've certainly been challenged in the, in the past by partners saying, I really want you to have some preferences, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> there can be that sense of, okay, no, I'm fine with whatever happens. And actually, you know, that's a kind of spiritual bypass, isn't it? You know? And the Buddha pointed to the dangers of this, what he called annihilationist thinking, where we develop the view that the aim is to get rid of the self. Because, you know, he really highlighted, you know, the ethical dangers of that. Can we sense that? If there's no self, then it doesn't matter what I do. The one thing he never said was not self, as our sense of ethical responsibility. And it feels so important to acknowledge this because there are people and situations and communities in our societies that get unseen, whose personhood doesn't get 
honoured, doesn't get fully given the same value as that of others. You know? And that is a danger of this kind of, of a misunderstanding of this. Do, do we sense that? It's why this is so important, you know, that, that we honour the skillful seeing and respecting of self as well as the teaching of not-self. You know. And the Buddha said it's tricky. He said it's like picking up a snake, this teaching. You can pick it up and hold it skillfully and use its venom as a medicine, but you can also pick it up by the tail and it'll bite you. <laughs> you know. So this, this kind of principle really... Uh, Flexibility of view. Flexibility of view. And <clears throat> the, the, uh, it's perhaps why on the one occasion when the Buddha was asked, is there a self or not, he remained silent. He remained silent. And his silence perhaps points to the fact that this is not the right issue. This is not the right question. Is there a self or not? His teachings are not about trying to assert or deny the existence of a self, but to illuminate the unconscious clinging to an activity, an activity that he presented as integral to the experience of suffering, of dukkha. The activity of what he called I-making and my-making. Yeah. So the self is, the question is not, is there a self or not? But how does the sense of self arise? And what is the relationship of that to suffering? How does it work? I think it was Jaya highlighting that, that the, the, the issue here is about what as psychologists, we might call processes of identification and clinging. Making things into me or mine in a way that constricts us, causes us to suffer. Does that make sense? Can we feel that? So these processes of I-making and my-making that uh, the Buddha really highlighted is, we could say, building on Jaya's wonderful reading from the end of her talk, they're deeply programmed. He, he called them kind of super programs. Abhisankara is the Pali for that. That, that. that organize a lot of our experience in terms of I and me and mine. One, he, he highlighted two particular aspects of that. One is, is the, the process of creating what he calls self-views, where we identify, either consciously or unconsciously, we come to identify the self with, well, could be the body, could be our feelings, could be our thoughts, could be awareness, it is so often the stories we tell about ourselves. What one teacher calls the mind-based me and its unsatisfying story. Yeah. 
the stories that we've told that have somehow helped us make sense of past experiences. The, the good times and the really difficult times. The, the way we get identified with roles, don't we? Our roles in the family, our roles at work, the labels we give and that we develop a kind of attachment to. Often the the views that we are somehow not enough of this or too much of that. The kind of judgments that we believe and we identify with and that can kind of torture us, can't they? You know, the negative self-views. And, you know, our mindfulness practice, our, our wise psychology can really highlight that all of this is totally understandable, that we cling. We cling to views. We cling to personality views, identity beliefs, as the Buddha uh, calls them. But can't we also feel how they constrict us? That, that often it can feel like kind of trying to get into clothes that we've outgrown, you know, or shoes that we've outgrown. And it kind of feels tight, doesn't it? That, those beliefs that I'm like this, I'm like that, I'm not enough of this, I'm too much of that. You know? We feel the kind of binding force of these self-views. When they're clung to when they're believed, when we take them for being who I really am. Yeah. I just wanted to pause there. Do we all sense, sense that? Can, can we feel that way in which there seems to be a natural tendency of the human heart to, to identify with views of self, isn't there? Who I think I am. You know, what I think I am. How I think I am. And just to feel, feel that constriction. How, feel how it constricts the heart, it constricts the thinking, it constricts the range of expressiveness sometimes. It constricts the body, doesn't it? You know, the uptightness. Cognitive psychology calls them core beliefs, doesn't it? How much they are the origins of so much of our distress and our dissatisfaction with life. And the Buddha said that this this layer of identification, self-view, builds on an even deeper layer, which is the felt sense of the self in comparison to others and in relation to others. The The basic sense of being better than or less than, or equal to others. Can we feel how, how kind of, in different relationships, it's different. In some relationships I feel better than, others I feel less than, some I feel equal to. And just how kind of deeply programmed this kind of relational positioning is. Can we sense that? And how that is the source often of, you know, the comparisons, the judgments the, the sense of, what do they call it, compare and despair. You know? And, you know, the Buddha really points to how deeply 
ingrained this is in saying that this, that aspect of comparison doesn't go until the final stage of awakening. So we've probably got plenty of time to get used to it and to, to learn to hold it with more, more mindfulness. You know? It's even kind of built into the structure of language, isn't it, with nouns and pronouns. I, you, he, she. The language itself is creating selves, isn't it? The, the philosopher Wittgenstein said, said uh, the sense of self is a shadow cast by grammar. Which I think is such an insightful comment. You know, we live in a language of nouns. The Buddha lived in a language of verbs, of process, but we live in a language of nouns, and that that uh, that contributes to this movement of selfing, this movement of of identification and and self limiting that that leaves us feeling constricted, doesn't it? Leaves us feeling constricted. And I'm just, I couldn't get the printer to print this out in a kind of reason, very readable size. So I keep kind of thinking I'm going to miss things. Uh, yeah. Can we feel how, how when we really identify with a self-view, those Brahma-Vihara qualities that we've been speaking they're squeezed out, aren't they? When I really believe the story of inadequacy or unlovability, it's very hard to be appreciative, <laughs> Or compassionate, you know. When I'm very identified with believing that the body is me, because I, I happened to look in the mirror and had a bit of a unpleasant Vedana, you know. Uh, it's very hard for the, to, to, to feel compassionate. Whenever there's that clinging and grasping, the Brahma Viharas get squeezed out. And this is something to, to notice. What, what we're Exploring here is the sense that the self is not a noun, but an activity. It's a verb. It's a process not of self, but of selfing. Or at least that might be a really interesting and potentially helpful way of looking. To see that selfing kind of fluctuates during the day, doesn't it? And doesn't it fluctuate the times when the self feels really kind of strong and loud and constricted, and then there are times when it really quietens down, and often on retreat, you know, there's a general quietening of the level of selfing. And then there are bursts when it comes right back up, yeah? And then it goes. And just to be interested in that process, the Buddha describes selfing as as a dependent co-arising. Some of you will know this very well. That sense that the selfing strengthens and diminishes independence in dependence on a whole bunch of other factors. So if we take the experience of being in a sitting and experiencing unpleasant Vedana in the body, some sense of discomfort, okay? Unpleasant Vedana. Isn't it kind of automatic that there's an immediate sense of, oh, don't like. Yeah? There's a basic kind of aversion to that, don't like. And if we don't spot the, that, that with mindfulness, it can solidify into a kind of don't want. Yeah? And 
doesn't that quickly become, I don't want this? Yeah? I don't want this. And there's me and there's that pain in the knee that has become an other, hasn't it? That I don't want it, you know? And isn't it so easy at that point for, for the I, for the whole story of I to come in, in in an entangling way so that the story, I can never do this. You know, this never goes, you know, why can't I do this? Other people are sitting around looking like Buddhas and I'm here <laughs> just, you know, in agony. Why can't I do this? You know? And don't we sense that it's when that self-story comes in, of, and it often has never or always in. Do you notice that, the self-story around this? You know? And that, isn't that there where the doubt comes in? You know? Either it's the self-doubt that says, I can't do it, or it's the path doubt that says, this isn't what it's cracked up to be, I should have done the Zumba week instead. You know? <laughs> and, and that comes in with the sense of self, doesn't it? You know? And there are a few other things that we can notice. Do you notice? Do you notice how the unpleasantness intensifies in proportion to the amount of not wanting it to be there? If I really don't want it to be there, the more I really don't want it, the more unpleasant the Vedana is. Interesting, isn't it? You know? Because it means that the, the Vedana is being pumped up by the degree of aversion to it. That's, that's worth noting, you know, because there may be something kind of useful in, in that observation, you know. But other things we can notice, the body contracts, doesn't it? When there's contraction in the mind, there's contraction in the body. Notice the effect also on the sense of time. Doesn't time, you know, if it's unpleasant, often time, it feels like it's going so slowly. Why can't they just ring the bell at the front, you know? Or, or there's a sense of, you know, I'm having an unpleasant sitting. And the idea of only being on day, whatever it is, day four, it's like, oh, give me a break. I've got, you know, another three days of this kind of desert of vast eternity, you know. And I've got to get out, you know, the urge to do, doesn't that's where the doing kicks in. I've got to do something to get out of here, you know. And don't we, and the other, and you notice also how the sense of others also get, you know, how in that contracted space, again, there's, there's not a sense of compassion or appreciation for those who are, it's they're getting it and I'm not kind of comparison. It's a whole bunch of dukkha, isn't it? And can we see that what's happened is these factors have all fed and supported each other. Do we sense that? And, and that they have really pumped up the sense of unpleasantness. And that quite integral to that process is the belief in self. A self who's not getting it right, not doing it right, having an experience that she or he doesn't want. Can we see that? And all the story and memory that feeds that sense of can't do. As you could point out this morning, one, one thing changed. We hear the lunch bell, you know. Uh, somebody smiles at us. We see one of the chipmunks that was out this morning, you know. Uh, we do some mindful movement. And 
the whole souffle can just kind of sink and collapse, can't it? And actually, it's fine. Time, you know, the body feels more spacious. There isn't the same sense of aversion. The sense of time, oh, I'm really enjoying this, but I'm so glad there are three more days. I've got all the time to (laughs) marinate in this, like they're saying, you know. And and, I start to see the lovability of the people around me. Can we see the implications of this? That self isn't this separate phenomenon. It's something that arises and diminishes dependent on many factors and primarily the degree of craving and aversion that's present in any moment. Do we sense that? The more craving, the more intense, the more fiery the craving and aversion the more there's this intensification and kind of consolidation of the felt sense of self as the one who wants or doesn't want a certain experience to be happening. The more there's this feeling of a, of a kind of felt center to experience that's substantial and has views. Yeah? And that actually this fluctuates, this fluctuates. Selfing, craving, dukkha-ing, suffering, a spectrum that goes up and down. We could map the graph of the day by the arising and diminishing of the sense of selfing, couldn't we? That would be one way of describing the day. Does that make sense? Can you, can you feel that? All of this intended for reflection. Not, I'm not trying to tell you how it is, but just to offer some possible things to play with as you investigate. You know. and, and part of the great opportunity of retreat is this sense we get to explore more of the spectrum than we do on daily life. You know, where actually things do have the chance to quieten down a bit and there's more space and there's less... You know, impingement, there's more peacefulness, there's more grounding, there's more kindness. And we feel how those factors can diminish the sense of selfing and the sense of craving on which it depends. So here we're moving into this sense of of selfing as an arising uh, or an intensifying and diminishing activity. Something that, that waxes and wanes, that expands and contracts like everything else in nature. Like everything else in nature. And, and we can see how it gets patterned, can't we? We can see how experiences from the womb, maybe even before the womb, experiences of Vedana, of pleasantness or unpleasantness shape selfing patterns, don't they? The movement towards that which is pleasant, the movement away from that which is unpleasant or that which is absent in a certain way. And and that there's this kind of patterning that is our developing, is the developing of this body, heart, mind. This is the the patterning the Buddha calls sankharas, formations, patternings, programs 
for using that image, activations, drives. And that they're very plural. They can be very different in different contexts, in different relationships. And they are relational. They're relational. Our patterns are deeply relational. And we can see then that from this perspective, there isn't a permanent, substantial self in the middle of experience to whom it's all happening. That the body can be bodying, as Jaya put it, without somebody owning that, somebody permanent, substantial owning that. You know? that, that Chitta states that m- moods and mental states can be just weather without having to be mine or to say something about me. And that, yes, you know, in moods, when anger is angering, there may be the mirage of someone who is angry, but that's not a permanent self. The sadness, there isn't a permanent, fixed person who's owning that. As a way of looking. Right? This is a way of looking. This is a way of looking. This is a way of seeing. Well, what's the effect if I allow, as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy puts it, for thoughts to be mental events and not facts? Thoughts to be just thoughts. Moods to be just moods. Sensations to be just sensations. None of it in my control though certainly shaped by intentions and what's being cultivated moment by moment. But from one perspective, one perspective, we could say, isn't our experience one of ownerless mind and body moments arising and passing? And that when there is that sense of not being so identified with the phenomena of experience, the taste isn't one of blankness or of annihilation, but of a kind of radical freedom, a kind of lightness of being, where I can be fully present for, fully mindful, or fully respectful and f- of and, f- and friendly towards experience without clinging on to it as I or me or mine. So this is pointing towards this sense of flexibility of view. Kind of, we could say, almost versatility of view and of perspectives in, in response to conditions. And this is something we find in the, in the Buddha's teachings where he sometimes uses the language of self. He says, he says, looking after oneself, one looks after others. 
looking after others, one looks after oneself. In the metta practice that we were doing this afternoon, we, we practice the perspective of self, don't we? You know, may I be safe and well. May I be peaceful. And it's so important at times really to honor the story. Honor the story that we tell that makes sense of our experience or is a way of understanding our experience, that may be a way of reclaiming experience that has been negated or overlooked or bypassed, missed in some way. And, and you know, the domain of ethics requires a sense of relative selves, doesn't it? The sense of respect for personhood, just like parenting does, and sexuality does, and creativity does, and friendship, and psychotherapy. that at times it's really important to say, I am this, and I prefer this. This is my no, this is my boundary. There will be some people who come into our mindfulness classes and our therapy rooms, and sometimes for all of us, where it's actually really important to say, okay, this is me, this is me. If I'm feeling really disoriented... And sometimes that happens on retreat, as some of you have been commenting. You know, it's just so different. There can be a sense of, God, I don't quite know who I am. And at times there can be a real skillfulness in saying, okay, this is me, yeah, got it, yeah. You know? Skillful way of looking. Not an ultimate truth, but a skillful way of looking. You know? And... You know, I think we said on the first evening how our unique and particular personhood needs to be respected, needs to be understood, needs to be accepted. And we could also say needs to be self-parented and sometimes needs to be danced and sung and adventured and rewilded, you know, and fully honored and allowed to develop its rich colors and dimensionality. So not kind of getting blanched into a pseudo-Buddhist beige, yeah? <laughs> Celebrating our, color, our colored dimensionality, multicolored dimensionality. Yeah? Please. (laughs) Please, you know. I certainly know in my own experience the cost of, of, of picking up the snake kind of by the wrong end and somehow blanching or compressing something of what this particular body, heart, mind is wanting to express or boundaries it's needing to assert or aspirations it's needing to honor or longings it needs needing to love, you know. What is it, Mary Oliver's line? 
letting the soft animal of your body love what it loves. So important, so important not to spiritually bypass that. To hold that with compassion. This is the dimension of what, the axis of what Ken Wilber would call growing up and growing into. And what the psychologist, psychologist James Hillman would call growing down. Growing down into our potentiality. And, and, the, the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, point to the ways in which we become bound up and constricted by self-views and self-judgments and self-limiting beliefs and unhelpful identifications if we don't also know the perspective, the view, the truth of not-self. Not-self as a way of disidentifying, releasing from the clinging to what we habitually cling to and therefore cause suffering. Do we, do we sense this? Do we sense that this is a kind of middle way here? Honoring the self and also seeing that, you know, so long as, there's lo- so long as this body, heart, mind is, is, is clinging to beliefs about the self and what I am, there's going to be neurosis. <laughs> there's going to be that kind of entanglement, that kind of binding. You know. and, and that releasing ourselves and others from identification with our stories and our beliefs. You know, the the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus said, you never step in the same river twice. Helpful to have the perception sometimes. You never meet the same person twice. It's an interesting one to practice with one's family. You know, because it's so easy, isn't it, to relate to my beliefs about what they're like or how they are, you know, or in a mindfulness course, you know, by week three, there's that person, you know, with a difficult one. And it's so easy unconsciously to imprison them in that belief system and to unconsciously relate to them as that difficult person who did that in week one or said that in week one. You never meet the same person twice. It can be such a helpful unbinding. You know? Let alone looking in the mirror. You never meet the same person twice. You know? This is so important, so important, so radically freeing. So radically freeing can transform the experience of psychotherapy for the therapist and the client to have that perspective where we're not defining other people or ourselves by beliefs and self-views and stories. What does it do? It creates the room for growth. It creates the room for change. It creates the room for love, for care, for seeing and celebrating the freshness and the newness. 
even when we don't like it. <laughs> you know. This is the dimension that Ken Wilber calls waking up. We need to grow up and we need to wake up. And that the Buddha calls the unbinding, the nibbana in of our experience. And can we know both modes? Can we know both modes? Mindfulness tends to decompress the sense of selfing out of experience by bringing attention to Vedana, by bringing attention to present moment experience. It, it releases the unconscious reactivity that because it's got craving and clinging, it's got selfing in it. <laughs> yeah? So the more we practice mindfulness, you know, the more there is going to generally be a declining in our default levels of selfing. I'm guessing that pretty much everyone in this room knows that. Isn't that right? There are times when I really don't know it myself, which is why I don't say everybody. You know? but, but don't we sense that? And, you know, it's partly to encourage that in mindfulness-based approaches that we're encouraged to, to talk about when you're doing the body scan, the feet, the toes, the knees, the hands, the breath, not your feet, your toes, not your knees. Sometimes the your really helpful if someone's dissociated or traumatized, you know, or got that particular kind of traumatization. But also so liberating to be able to see these experiences more phenomenologically as just body, bodying, moods, mooding. Thoughts, not me, not mine, Joseph Goldstein says, if we haven't seen the selfless nature of thoughts, we're tormented by them. When we do see this, they become like a wisp of air. There's not much there. So mindfulness is going naturally to help kind of reduce selfing. And the Buddha, it seems, you know, pointed again and again to how entrenched the mistaken view, the mistaken belief in substantial self is. That he recommended practicing this as a way of looking, as what he called an anupasana, a way of seeing with experience, a perception that he encouraged us to practice. He said to his son, you should practice seeing all things as they really are, with proper wisdom thus, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. bit of a clunky phrase, we could abbreviate it to not me, not mine, as something to play with, you know. It's an interesting one to do when you go back to your room and you look at your possessions. Oh, not me, not mine, just clothes, just things, you know. Your car in the parking lot, you know, oh, not me, not mine, you know. Interesting one to try with friends, with family members, not me, not mine. <laughs> you know, it's what Khalil Gibran and his speak to us of children. What does he say? Your children are not your children. I mean, they are your children, and they're not. <laughs> you know, they're too mysterious and beautiful to be just owned in, in that way. Externally, 
What about internally? The sensations of the body that's sitting here right now. Not me, not mine, just sensations. The mood or mental state that's here right now. Oh, not me, not mine, just a mood, just a mental state. The thoughts, the habit patterns, you know? The patterns of selfing, not me, not mine, just selfing, you know? The, the thought that's saying, not me, not mine. Oh, not me, not mine. Oh. Where's that coming from? Well, try it. Try it. What about awareness itself, which is often the kind of last place that we colonize in spiritual practice? And some spiritual traditions do say that is the capital S self. The Buddha says we can, we can actually say that also, not me, not mine. Just knowing. Experiences appearing, experiences appearing and arising, but somehow empty of an inherent, substantial selfhood, not needing to be owned. The Buddha invites us to, to practice this way of looking, actually in quite a methodical way. And that's, in a certain way, what mindfulness-based approach is begins in an eight-week journey. Certainly part of the opportunity of retreat. To practice for a sitting, for a walking, for a day, for a minute. Just seeing whatever arises. Ah, not me, not mine. What effect does that have? Does it make it more bland? Does it make it more dull? Or does it bring it to life? Does it make it seem more solid, more clunky, or more kind of evanescent? More, as the Buddha put it, mirage-like. The Buddha compared perception to a mirage. Just like he compared Vedana to drops of water. And consciousness, awareness, to a conjuring trick. And as we explore this, we may begin to discover that it's not a model of a selfless person in a substantial world. You see what I mean? It's not a selfless person in a substantial world, but that the whole whole of our experience can have this same... more liberated quality. The Buddha said, to say that things exist is one extreme. To say that they don't exist is another extreme. But as he put it, I teach the path of the middle way, which is to say that they have what he called dependent existence. They arise depending on countless other factors of body and mind and belief and assumption and projection. 
And there's something deeply beautiful and deeply liberating about that. One of the later Buddhist, Buddhist teachings says, all conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, dewdrops, and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. All experience of anything, like dreams, all experience of anything, like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, dewdrops, and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. Practice playing with perceiving them thus. Notice what happens. Is there more suffering? Is there more craving? Is there more aversion? Is there more reactivity? Or isn't there a quite radical and in some ways quite mysterious releasing and opening and freeing and lightening and easing? softening and enabling of a kind of freedom when we see that things don't perhaps exist in the substantial way that we'd assumed and that at a certain level craving and aversion chasing mirages doesn't make so much sense. In our most peaceful moments on retreat, maybe we sense the freedom of heart that comes from the release of the addiction to wanting things to be different from how they are. The release of the clinging to self-views and definitions. From the way in which experience can, can open up and we can feel a new level of ease and freedom and unbinding in the textures of our body and our heart. This is the unfolding of a freedom that is both practical and accessible. You know, try this and see. <laughs> try this and see. Practical and accessible and also timeless and profound. And what we may find is that it deepens our care and our capacity to love. One of the, the great and beautiful Tibetan beings of the 20th century who was a tutor to, to the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Dilgo Kyentse Rinpoche. He said, when you really see the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns 
uncontrived and effortless. And at the end of this talk, which has been about uh, self and not self, and the benefits and the importance of practicing both ways of looking, developing a flexibility of view, sensing which is most appropriate at this moment, in this relationship, and learning to almost kind of deploy these ways of looking in response to the conditions of life uh, and of love. Uh, Just a final saying that some of you will know well from another great uh, wise being of the 20th century, Sri Nisargadatta, where he speaks to the same, that same flexibility, that same openness. saying, wisdom Wisdom sees that I am no thing. Love, love sees that I'm everything. Between these two, the lives of the wise ones flow. Let's just pause for a breath or two. So thank you for your kind attention. Mm-hmm. I notice um, at the end of this talk feeling a, a kind of need to just feel ground underneath the, the body and it may be that if this thought talk has felt a bit kind of reflective in a way that's taken you out of your body that now's a good time as you walk to befriend your feet again and feel... Uh, just the the warmth and the movement of the body, and we will uh, we'll meet again at uh, quarter to eight forty five for some chanting and a short sitting before uh, time to rest. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate